there was a couple that met an older gentleman in town, really a kind gentleman. They, they got to know him well, and as they learned more about him, they realized that he was this famous inventor. In fact, his patents were more than anyone could count, and out of his inventions, he had this enormous wealth, and the friendship grew, and, and a day came when he said, I'd like to take you out and show you one of my many properties, and I have a reason to take you. So they go out to this ranch he has, and, and he begins to unfold this story for them. He says, this is a 10,000-acre ranch that I have, and, and this is the house on the ranch, and he gives them the tour of the house. It's like this mansion on the ranch, and, and then he, he takes them around and shows them the forest on the ranch on the 10,000 acres and the wildlife on it. He shows them the orchards on it. He shows them some of the many streams. This is in the foothills of the mountains, some of the many streams that go through the property there. He shows them the three swimming holes on the property, and he says, I would like to give you access to live here as long as you want, no charge at all. All of the tax bills, they come to me anyway. We'll continue that. All the utilities come to me. We'll do that anyway. But just as a gift to you, I'd like to give you access to this. This can be your home as long as you want. The entire 10,000 acres, the house, the forest, the orchards, the swimming holes, it's all yours. One, one thing, one swimming hole is, is toxic. It's very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Other than that, it's all yours to use. They were floored by it. They were astounded by it. They readily accepted it. It seemed like a dream far too good to be true. They'd wake up in the morning thinking the, the plug would be pulled out and the, the moving van would be there to load them up and move them out. But day after day, week after week, month after month, as they explored the 10,000 acres, and they saw the stunning gift it was. And, and they couldn't believe someone would be so kind and so generous to them. Some time passes, they meet another man in, in town, a very charming man, a man with different ways of seeing things, different ideas, very, very stimulating to talk with. And after getting to know him and becoming friends with him, they invited him out to the, to the ranch one day. And they're showing him around the ranch and saying, can you believe, like, who is this good? Like, who is this generous? And they, they show him the forest and they show him the orchards and they do the tour of the house. They take him to the swimming holes and they show him it's all ours. I mean, every bill paid, it's all ours. I mean, access to everything except the one swimming hole. It's dangerous there. We don't have access to that. And the charming man said, well, that's, that's kind of puzzling because I see, I look at that, and it looks like the prettiest of the three swimming holes. Why do you really think you can't use that one? And they said, well, because it's dangerous. And he said, how? It doesn't look dangerous. I, I think there's probably another motive, and that's fine. He's been very generous with you, very generous, but, but it looks like the best of the swimming holes. And and, and I think maybe he's afraid that you're going to ruin it or litter it or do some damage somehow. I, th I think he's just holding out on you. And they think it's absurd. They go back to the house. Some days pass, and they find themselves going out to that third swimming hole again and again. And, and it has the clearest water, and it's the most beautiful setting. And there are these two ledges to dive off, off of. And a summer morning comes, they pack a picnic, they take their swimming gear, they head out to that third swimming hole, and, and they dive in on this hot summer day, and it is the most cool, refreshing water they've ever experienced. And it is crystal clear, it is this stunning experience. And later that day, they would realize that they had now um, ingested within themselves flesh-eating bacteria, and within weeks, they would be dead. They thought the generous friend was holding out on them, and in fact, he was just simply protecting them. He said, it's all yours except one swimming hole. A lot of you know I have just retold Genesis 1 through 3. 
I've just retold Adam and Eve where it, it wasn't a 10,000 acre ranch. God says, it's, this is the Garden of Eden. It's more than that. It's the entire planet. The whole thing is yours. And, and the stunning you know, orchards and mountains and streams and lakes and on and on and on forever. Wildlife, all of that's all yours. One thing, there's just one tree. Don't eat the fruit of one tree because it, it will kill you if you do. All the rest is yours. And they were blown away. They were stunned by this generosity of this God that made them and gave them all of this. And then this um, new acquaintance comes by, and they show him around, and he checks it out and says, this is pretty amazing. They show him the one tree and say, it's all ours. We can't touch fruit on that tree. And he says, I wonder why. I wonder why he doesn't want you to touch that fruit. And they say, it'll kill us. He said, it doesn't look like to me. It looks like the best fruit in the whole orchard. It doesn't look like it to me. A little time passes. Adam and Eve decide, you know what? God is holding out on it. They've taken the ultimate lie of Satan, hook, line, and sinker. They take the fruit, and indeed they would die. And they would, call, they would cause wreckage by doing so that we are experiencing, every one of us today. Satan's lie is that God is holding out on us. That's where we're going today. God's holding out on us. It is so, the lie is so pervasive. I believe every human being that's ever lived has at one time or another, if not for the whole life, has believed this lie, every human being. And it is so subtle, I suspect that most of us in this room, if not all of us, it's so subtle, there's a high chance that there's still some areas of our lives still, those of us that follow Jesus and are way down the road, that there's still some areas of our lives where if we examine them deeply in those areas, We still believe God's holding out because we know what God has said in those areas, and we're not doing what he says. Why? Because we really think life would be better if we just did it our way in just that area or that area or those areas. It's so pervasive and it's so subtle. So that's where we're going today. I need to back up for a moment with us and go back to the beginning of the series. We've said that every one of us here wants to build a life upon truth because we we want to build upon that which is true. And we said the very first lie that we addressed was the foundational lie is that absolute truth is a myth. There's no way to know what, really, what truth is. It's all relative anyway. And that day we settled on this on 2 Timothy 3.16, which says this. And I have it memorized, but when I start thinking and seeing you, I forget it. So let me read it to you. This is what it says. You guys have it all memorized. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. And to make us realize what's wrong in our lives, it corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. Okay, all scripture, everything in the Bible is inspired by God. And it's useful to teach us what is true, to teach us what is truth. Where we landed was we could go to scripture, to the Bible, and everything there is truth, is absolute truth. It's foundational to every week of this 10-week series. It's foundational to everything we'll we'll touch upon. Okay, Okay, so, so here's the lie for today. God is holding out on us. And this is what it might sound like if you're trying to think if you're one of the ones I threw this big net around that that has this that's still in your life someplace. This is what it might sound like. It might sound like you thinking, you know, I I can, I will follow God in almost every area. But, But there's this one area. If I followed him, if I really did what he said here, it would diminish my life at least a little bit. It would not be the best life if I followed God in this area of life. I know what he says, but I, th- I really think I win. It's better. It's a better life. And, and what's the big deal anyway? So I'll just do what I want to do in that area. That's what it sounds like. And, and it's, it's ironic because it comes from those of us that began a life of surrendering to Jesus' leadership. 
we really intended to yield everything to his leadership, and yet we find ourselves yielding a whole bunch of stuff, but we find some areas that we, we pick and choose when we want to follow him and obey him and when we don't. And when we don't, it's always because we believe the path we're choosing is better for us. We believe that creates the better life. I, I guarantee you that's, that's what's behind every time we do that. That's what it sounds like. I, I'll obey God and everything except this is what it might look like. You probably know or would guess that God says, I want you to live in complete honesty, complete integrity. Ne- never lie, never cheat. You probably know that. This is what it might look like. So you're, you're taking this key exam at school. This is a really important one. You think you prepped well for it. You're looking through the exam, and it's a disaster already. You're thinking, this is, this is really going south. I'm going to be in trouble in the class. I'll be in trouble at home and everything. And just out of the corner of your eye, you see the person next to you has this wide-open desk, and you remember they're the one that aces all the tests, and they're filling in all the answers, and they're right there for you to look at. And you know God says, complete integrity, never cheat. You know that, but you're weighing it out. You're thinking, what's the better life for me? Isn't it just, what's the harm? Just take a few answers, put them down. I'll get a good grade. I'm okay with the class. I'm okay at home with my parents. It, like, what's, who gets hurt by that? I mean, isn't that? Isn't that the better choice? Or maybe it's not an exam. Maybe it's income tax time. And you're sitting down, and there's a part of income that, that no one but you knows about, and it's taxable income. And you're sitting there, and you start doing the, the rationality. That they tax you way too much anyway. And the money they've already taken from you, they waste. They don't even use well. And then there's already $7 trillion worth of debt. Actually, that was last week or something. It's a lot more than that by this week. There's already, what difference would it make? Like, what's the better life? Why wouldn't I? No one's going to know. What's the harm? I won't show that bit of income. The government will never know. They'll never miss it. They'll never know. That's what it begins to look like. And I could go through segment after segment after segment of our lives. That's what it looks like. Here's the truth. We're going to build off of this. I want to give you three passages. I could give you so many more. Psalm 32a says, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. He doesn't say, I will guide you along a really good pathway. He doesn't say, I'll guide you, guide you along a pathway that is 90% there. Or I'll guide you along this pathway that will deliver to you 99% of the best life. He says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. There is no better. Any diversion from my pathway is going to be a lesser version for your life. I will guide you along the best pathway. James 1.17, the New Testament, says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing given, every perfect gift. That means if there's something that you're considering, if you're considering doing or acquiring or whatever that's not from God, that's opposed to God's direction, then you can be sure it's not a good thing because God says everything that's good is from me. Everything that's good is of me. And so if you've found something, and we've all done this, and we're thinking this is a better thing, this is a better good thing, and it's different than what God says, we can be sure it's not good. It's not good. Every 
good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. It means that out of 365 days a year, it doesn't mean that on 360 of them, God is grace-filled and good, and he's for you, but he has about five bad days a year. It doesn't mean that. Means he is unchanging. He's always graceful. He's always good. He's always right. He's always for you. He's always for you. And then one more. This is the one I'm going to challenge you to memorize, to, to stick in your brain bank, to live out of the rest of your life. John 10 10 says, The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. Thief's purpose, steal, kill, destroy. My purpose, the reason I came, he says, is to give life in all its fullness. If you look at the Greek, which was the original writing of this, where it says um, all its fullness, you would find he would be saying, I came to give you a life that is excessively, exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything you could ever imagine. I mean, that's the way it reads. I, I came for this, Jesus would say to you, I came for this reason to give you a life that is excessively, exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything you could ever imagine. That's the promise of Jesus. Now, why, why do we take the lie, hook, line, and sinker that God's holding out? I'll give you two key reasons. One is this, is that our instinct for truth is badly distorted. Our instinct for truth is badly distorted. I'll give you an illustration. Marie and I hired a contractor to do some work at our house. He progressed through the job, and the job was going very badly. We met with him. We tried to talk through how to correct the job, and uh, we got to the point where uh, it was not going to be corrected, and it was costing us a lot of excessive money, excessive costs. And so I said, we'll have to terminate the contract, and I promise you we will settle very fairly with you. And I said, I'll call you in 24 hours, and I need some time to think and pray. So I called him in 24 hours and said, this is what I believe would be very, very fair to you for the work that you've done and walk through it. And instantly, with um, great emotion, he said, he said, the next thing I'm going to do is call my attorney, who I know very, very well. He's done this for me many times, which should have told me something. And, and, and I'll file a lawsuit. I'll file a lawsuit, and I'll take all I can from you. And I honestly said, with complete peace, I said, if you, if you want to do it, you can, but... But I think any reasonable person would look at this and say, I have paid you way too much. And so if that's what you, you must do, then go ahead and do it. I feel free. So I went to bed that night, and middle of the night I woke up, and I felt God just imprinting on my brain 1 Corinthians 6. And it says there, if you have a difference with another Christ follower, and this man said he's a follower of Jesus, it says, work it out between the two of you, between two Christ followers. And whatever you do, don't ever take it to, this, to a secular court and, and expect a secular court to solve it because what kind of picture do you give of the life that Jesus has created in you? If two brothers can't resolve something, what kind of picture does the world see? They think, well, followers of Jesus are just like us, just as messed up with us. And then this is the part that really wrecked my night. It says, if you can't resolve it, then you just absorb the cost. So I, I woke up the next morning, and I told Marie, I said, I, boy, God has put 1 Corinthians 6 right in my head. And 
we can't go the lawsuit route, so I have to find some way to resolve this where he's satisfied with it. And she said, are you afraid of the lawsuit? And I said, not at all. I mean, I, I'm not afraid of that at all, but, but I know what God has said to do. So right about that time, the man contacted me, and we began to see where we could compromise. And we compromised at a point where he was content that cost us a lot more money. Now, is there any logic of doing what we did on that? I'm, I'm really stretched on that, and I don't have anything to offer on that about how to think, like, how did we win? Like, how is this a better life for us? But the one thing I know is this is what God says. And I've come to a point of I deeply believe if God says, this is what I want you to do, he's also said, I am building the best life for you. In this I deeply believe that. And it's not that Marie and I have a bunch of extra money. We've been saving for a car for years and have a long ways to go. This came out of the car savings. But, but there's this deep resolution. Again, uh, my view of truth is so badly distorted. And so God says in this circumstance, this is what I would have you do. I deeply believe this is the best life. This is, this is simply the best life. And, and, and I know that because of what his word says. And I don't take my rationale of truth and judge God's word on, on my rationale of truth. Now, I hold my view of truth up to God's word, and if God's word says different, then I junk mine. I throw mine in the trash. Okay, our instinct for truth is badly distorted. Second reason is this. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus is referring to Satan when he says the thief, his purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. In John eight forty four, he would say about Satan, he has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. He's the author of lies. There's this liar who would like to destroy us. In Matthew 4, Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. So he goes off to the wilderness. In fact, it says the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. So he's there because of this is God's plan. And he's spent 40 days with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father. He's been fasting and praying for 40 days. And this, this guest shows up. Satan shows up and says to Jesus, uh, you've got to be starving. I know it's been 40 days. And you're trying to think clearly and pray clearly and hear from the Father clearly and all that stuff. You've got to be starving. If you're really the Son of God, see those stones, you can turn them into bread in a heartbeat. You'd be so much better off. And there's this logic that says, of course, that you're never going to catch me having fasted for 40 days, okay? But if I've fasted for any, any length of time and you offer me bread, I'm going to be highly tempted, okay? Logic's going to make a lot of sense. What does Jesus do? This is very important. His first words are, the Scriptures say... The scriptures say, and then he goes on to say, man is not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. And there are two more temptations that Satan throws out, throws out two more lies. And both times Jesus begins by saying, the scriptures say. And he was teaching us with whatever we're looking at, whatever decision we have, he's teaching us because, because our view of truth is so distorted because there's this enemy that lies to us. He's teaching us to look to scripture and do what scripture says, what God says in scripture to do that clearly the second timothy all scripture is inspired by god and is useful to teach us what is true and to help us realize what's wrong in our lives it corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right okay let me touch on some common areas of struggle i i know us as a church after all these years one is 
in the area of forgiveness. God commands us to forgive those that wrong us. Matthew 6, 12 is one place that touches upon that. He commands us to forgive. But when, we, when we're faced with that, isn't it easy to, to ask the question after what they have done to me? How could I ever forgive that? Isn't it easy to ask after what they've done to me? How, how could I do that? How could I ever possibly forgive? I mean, how could I let them off the hook like that? I was thinking about the city of Charleston, and you know the tragic murder of nine people not that long ago, and you probably know as well that several of the family members of, the, of those that were killed almost immediately, very publicly said, we are forgiving, we're giving forgiveness to the one who killed our loved one, our family member. And from what we've seen, it appears to be very, very genuine. And I've been thinking about those people that are forgiven, and I know this, I know they are, they are struggling mightily with grief, deeply, deeply with grief. But they are no longer struggling with anger or hatred or vengeance or bitterness. Their only struggle is with grief. And whether they forgave or not, they're going to have the grief struggle. If they don't forgive, they'll have the grief struggle and anger and hatred and vengeance and bitterness, all that messed up, all that thrown in there. But they chose God's way, and they have forgiven, and that's, the grief is all they have to focus on. It's all there's left to deal with. And then there's this watching world that says, oh my goodness, how does anyone ever do that? Who is this God? Who is this Jesus? God says forgive, and we struggle with that. There'll be more to come on that in weeks ahead. Serving. Um, it says in Scripture, God commands us to serve. Mark ten forty five is one place. It says that, that Jesus himself didn't come to be served, but to serve, and we're commanded to serve as well. And when you think about some of the serves that God has called some of you to, it's a lot of work, it's costly, it's demanding, it's very uncomfortable. It, it's, there's so much downside. Why would you ever find a better life in doing that? And rather than me trying to tell someone's story, many of you know we go to Haiti every summer. A lot of people go. We went several weeks back. And on video, we've captured the story of two of those who went to Haiti. And I want you to be asking the question, did they find, did they gain by going or lose by going? Listen to this. The first time God asked me to go to Haiti, I did not go. It was four years ago. And I truly felt the felt God telling me to go to Haiti, and I didn't. When I thought about going to Haiti, I, I thought it would be, there would be some uncomfortable moments. Um, I didn't think that most of the time would be uncomfortable. I felt as if I had let God down because I wasn't obedient and didn't go the first time he asked. And then when I finally, you know, clearly heard God again the next year telling me to go to Haiti, I surrendered and I said, God, I'll go. I'll do what you want me to do. I had no idea why I was going other than I truly felt that God was telling me to go. One of the challenges for me was to try to not have any expectations when it's just so natural for me personally to set as many expectations as I can and be excited about something, anticipate what's going to happen. Um, and it was really fighting a lot of my, uh, my natural tendencies. You think that you are going to go there and contribute something. And God just used Haiti to remind me that uh, he doesn't need me to contribute, but it was a great opportunity to, uh, to participate. I seldom prayed except when things were tough or things weren't good in my life. I had never prayed out loud um, with a group of people. 
the first time I prayed out loud was in Haiti three years ago at um, a family's house on a prayer walk. Like I felt like God stripped away everything that I would normally lean on, and He only left me with His Word. Since I've come back from Haiti, I've gone to several women's Bible studies where um, we do pray out loud in groups um, at our table. At first it wasn't easy, and I won't say that it's easy now, but it's, it's become more easy and more comfortable to pray out loud with others. All of a sudden, God, for me, just blew up into this gigantic God. Um, and there, I had moments where I, I was, quite frankly, I was a little bit embarrassed of how I have viewed God in that tiny little box I put him in at times. I am so grateful that my eyes were opened, my heart was open more. I mean, just that my, my perspective changed. Um, and I hope that he, he will do it again. Look, I, I can't wait to go back. I know that in the future that if, if I truly hear God asking me to do something, I'll do it obediently the first time. I won't wait for God to tell me to do it over and over again before I surrender, that I'll do it the first time. It would be so easy to think that God calls you to go spend a week in Haiti, and you're thinking, uh, I, like, I'll pay the price. My life will be less. I'll pay the price. I'll do it. Uh, and here's the deal. They, they came back with a better life, didn't they? Because they went. Uh, and so serving is another area. It's one that we stumble over a lot. Another one is around money. Interestingly, in Haiti, the people in Haiti don't stumble around this. Uh, God says, and we'll talk in the future about this, God says, he wants us to invest in, in the things of heaven, not in the things of earth. And we look at that and think, now, why shouldn't I invest in the next bigger house and the additional cars and the bigger vacations? And why isn't that the bigger life? Why isn't that the better life? And, and God's saying to do what is opposite. In Haiti, they don't have that problem. They don't have any money. They have all this joy without the money there. But it's a problem here. It's a problem here to, to do what God says with our money. Why? Because when we don't do it, we really believe it'll be a lesser life if we obey him with money. We believe the lie. If I do what God says with money, it's going to be the lesser life. It's the lie. One more, and this one, it is pervasive among us. What God says about sex and sexuality, he, he says between a husband and wife, we're going to talk about this in coming weeks, it's, it's a week that you do not want to miss about the, the picture of what God in, um, dreams of for husband and wife. Sexuality is stunning. But then he says any expression of it outside of that does damage. And, and yet, and here's the truth, and I, we hope there's some massive headway in our lives. We've swallowed the lie. We swallow the lie in that area. Forgiveness, serving, money, and sex. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian thinkers I think of all time, would say this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easy. When we buy the lie, I mean, we have, we have settled for far, far too little when we buy the lie. Why, why do I believe it when God says he has the best path of life for me? And what would, 
what has convinced some of you, what could convince the rest of you around that? It's God's love. It's God's love. You get about 20 pages into the Bible, get to Genesis 22. Abraham has already uh, spoken to this man named Abraham, and he said, I'm going I'm to I'm reveal myself to you. I'm going to give you a son, and you'll have descendants, and I'll reveal myself through all these descendants of yours, and everything is going really great. 25 years pass, though, until the son comes. Abraham has his son Isaac, and, and Abraham is thanking God. This is stunning. He has a son, and Isaac grows up, and you get about 20 pages in, Genesis 22, and there's this deeply, deeply disturbing event that happens. God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, the one you love so much, I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. And so Abraham takes his son Isaac, and he gets him to the altar, and there's this, there's this you know what disturbs so deeply? Isaac is innocent. He's not a mass murderer. If he were, we would say, fine, sacrifice Isaac. He's this innocent son. I have heard this story since I was this big, and, and to this very day, it, that story deeply disturbs me. This is the innocent son. I mean, how? Why? Why? Why kill him? And then, and then if I get beyond that, there's this father who longed for the son, finally gets the son after waiting 25 years. The son has grown up, and he's thanking God, and now God says, now, now you, the father, that take the son's life? Of course, God is going to stop him because God would never have a father do that. God would never have a father do that. He stops him, but there's this deeply disturbing image of what, what is it like for a father to give the life of his son? And it lingers throughout the Bible. As you read through the Bible, you get to John chapter 3, verse 16, and Jesus has begun to teach, and he, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says, God loved the world so much he gave his son. And we know what gave means. We know it's not that he sent his son down for a vacation spell for a while down here. We understand it means he gave his son to death. And a little bit of time passes, and, and Jesus has said, he's already said to the crowds and to his followers, he says, no one can take my life from me. This is the innocent son speaking. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want and to pick it up when I want. And he's saying, you know what, this plan that's about to happen, it wasn't just the father's idea. This is a joint idea. The father came up with it, and I came up with it together. I am all in on this plan a short time passes. He's gathered with his closest followers. Matthew 26. It's the last night of his life before the cross. And he's sitting with them. And he's saying, you know what? There's no greater love than a man giving his life for his friends. And in that setting, he would take a loaf of bread. And he would give thanks to the Father for that loaf of bread and as he would rip the bread, he would say, this is my body, which will be ripped apart for you. And then he would take this cup, blood red cup, and give thanks to the Father. And would say, this cup represents my blood, which will be shed for you. And then he would say, do this often to remember me. And he was saying to them, remember Genesis 22, remember the horror of that story? What is it like for the innocent son to be killed? Who, who would do that? 
Why? Why would, why would that be done? What is it like for a father to give the life of his only son? What does it feel like to the father? Why would a father do that? And he's saying, here's the deal, guys. He's saying, the father and I are doing this because we love you so much. We hold nothing back. The father doesn't hold his only son back, and I'm the son, and I don't hold my life back. We love you with infinite love. You can bank your life on our love. You've got to come to a point where decisively you trust his love. And you say, it's a flat-out lie that God's holding out in any area. Yes, it's, it's the truth that Jesus came with this purpose to give me life in all its fullness. And I will bank my life on what he says. And I will dig out the areas of my life where I've been fooling myself. Those areas that are down in some little crevice and I, it's been so subtle... I don't even realize I'm still buying the lie there in my sexuality or my money or my time or my on and on and on and on. And to dig those out and say, man, I get it. He loves me. He holds no no good thing back from me. You got to get decisive on that. He said, I want you and my future followers to do this often because I want you to have this visual of my love. Like I want you to see the bread being ripped and recognize that I, I had my flesh ripped for you. I want you to dip it in this blood red cup and, and I want you to remember like I love you so much I died for you to set you free. And you can trust me. You can follow me in every facet of life. That is the good life. We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment, and I'm going to urge you before you would do it that you would spend some time and lay your life before God. Say, God, show me. For some of you, you've never even surrendered to Jesus. And for you, this would be to say, I I want to surrender it all. For a lot of us, it would be, I've surrendered, but there are some hidden places God, show me, because I want to surrender those as well. I want to follow everything you say, Father. Spend some time and reflect upon that. When, when you're ready, it makes things flow more easily if you would go this direction from the aisles you're in, come down toward the front. Um, watch when the server rips the bread and remember the love of Jesus in his ripped flesh. And you'll take the piece of bread, dip it in the blood-red cup, and remember that he, he bled and died for you. That's how much he loves you. And celebrate that love. And worship him and say, this is my life. This is my whole life. Worship him. So that all have a chance to participate at the far ends. We have gluten-free, like completely pure gluten-free on the far end. So all have a chance to participate. I'll pray. And then I invite you to, to sit there and reflect with God. And when you're ready... Um, celebrate this love of him for you decisively. Father in heaven, um, may we freshly experience, or maybe for the first time for some, experience your love. May it be at a new level. May it be, may it blow us away. May it wreck us 
that indeed the innocent son died. The innocent son dies. And the father gives up his son. And may, may we recognize the infinite depth of love that you and the son have for us. And may we decisively say, I will believe. You give me the good life. In every area of direction, you give me the good life, and my desire is to follow you. Whatever it takes, if I don't understand, so be it. If you said it, I'll do it. Whatever it costs, I will believe the best life is the life that you lead in. Father, may may this be a a profound and celebratory time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.